Welcome everybody. This is Mina Malapetti again with Amplify MD with another episode of our Seamless Connection podcast. And today I am especially excited to invite Dr. Tanya Elliott to come share some time with us. Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, we are thrilled to be able to pick your brain on all things virtual care. You have uh, a long track record in, of building successful businesses and taking them to the next level in this area from doctor on demand to working with Aetna on virtual primary care to working at Ascension and being their kind of driver of virtual care and now um, being on the board of the ATA and working with other venture back startups to bring virtual care to everywhere that needs it. So um, I'm going to pause there and let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing recently. And I'd love to dive into some questions with you. Well, thanks. Um, and I think you covered most of it. So, you know, I've worn many hats and sort of seen healthcare through multiple lenses. So my most recent role from an integrated delivery network perspective um, prior to that, from the payer perspective and also from the retail perspective, um, since I was there when CVS and Aetna had merged. And then prior to that, a few private equity-backed businesses and startups. And, you know, at each path in my journey is sort of like, oh, this is the thing that is going to propel healthcare to the 21st century. And then I'm like, well, no, I don't think, you know, Silicon Valley startup can do it alone. They need partnerships. Payers, that's the thing. And we're going to innovate from within. And then you're within the payer and you're like, yeah, but you don't have the provider. So I know I'm going to go on the provider side and then we're going to innovate and you know create change and momentum from within on the provider side. Um, and in all areas, we've made tremendous strides, but no one has yet cracked the code as to how to truly deliver patient obsessed and provider obsessed, you know, respecting that there's high degree of physician burnout um, and really thinking through how can we leverage technology to our favor to just provide amazing care to patients, one, and then two, how can we rethink the delivery model? You know, it doesn't always have to be face-to-face -face in an office. It doesn't always have to be face-to-face -face through video like we're doing. There's lots of other ways in which we can engage with patients asynchronously and there's a heck of a lot of data, both objective data that we can collect from patients through medical grade devices. And there's lots of real world data from consumer devices or even just um, symptom monitoring of our patients. So I'm in the process now of really thinking through where do I want to place my bets? Um, what are the organizations that are most set up for success? How can I contribute to the success of those organizations and truly propel them to be the, the leaders in care delivery or uh, uh, restructured care delivery that's much needed in this country? Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I definitely want to dive into that. But first, I always like to start the podcast with um, asking my guests, what's your healthcare story? Usually everyone has a healthcare story that's brought them to the table or that makes them super passionate about, you know, their perspective on healthcare, whether it's getting access, not getting access, whether it's a type of um, disease or condition. So I'd love to um, pick your brain a little bit on what your healthcare story is. So I have a couple, couple of things. One is just my healthcare story as on the provider side, because I think that's important. We hear lots of patient journeys and patient stories, but I'll talk a little bit about some of my frustrations on the provider side. So I started out as an allergist uh, on Park Avenue, and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm a New York City gal. I'm going to build this empire, this amazing practice. And very quickly, I realized that I was doing a huge disservice to my patients because I was asking them to do everything on my terms, call my office to make an appointment, 
come into my office completely stripped of anything that was associated with their identity. And as an allergist, their identity, their history, the other the things that are going on in their life, their occupation, what their home looks like, all of those things are critical to my ability to make a diagnosis. And here I am saying, okay, strip out of your clothes, put on a gown. So I have absolutely no idea who this person is. And we, what we've created is this cookie cutter experience where we're asking these you know, very um, basic questions that we ask every patient, and then we try to put a patient in a box. And that's not the case. And by the time patients come to see an allergist, this is now like their fourth, fifth, sixth doctor that they've seen. And so one of the things that drew me to allergy specifically was that it was a diagnostic dilemma and I really needed to do detective work. Well, you know what? I can't do detective work without the ability to investigate the scene of the crime. Um, so for me, I was unable to make diagnoses for my patients who had rashes because by the time they came to see me, allergic reaction is gone within 24, 48 hours. The only way I can make a diagnosis is if the patient had a photo on their phone. Hello, asynchronous telemedicine, right? And the ability for them to do that would allow me to make a diagnosis. If they didn't have a photo, I was everything was based off of their subjective recall. And I was making the wrong diagnoses because the patient was describing something and we're putting patients in a position to describe something, having never gone to medical school and having no idea what factors are important or not important. So I needed to be able to see stuff with my own eyes. So I was very grateful when a patient had taken a photo of something um, and then brought that to the visit because then I was able to make a diagnosis. The other thing is our first line of treatment for allergies is avoiding your triggers, avoiding what you're allergic to. So I remember I'd have someone come into my office and then I would give them a piece of paper and it would be a bunch of rectangles that said living room, bathroom, kitchen, two DPs of paper. And I would say, okay, now draw and write everything that's in your house. And then we can talk about the trigger. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I should be able to see into their homes. And I started to think, well, maybe I can go to different houses in New York City and do walkthrough tours. And I said, with New York City traffic, that would I would get to two houses. Like, that's not scalable. So I thought, what if I could do a video tour of their house? And lo and behold, I really got hooked on telehealth, not just as an access point for patients or a convenience point for patients, but as a necessary tool for me to do an environmental assessment and understand what the heck was going on with my patients. And um, I, was, I was just at a talk with um, the, the current CEO of Bridgewater Capital, and he said that there, he, he was previously CEO at, Aetna, CEO at Aetna, and he had heard a story of a patient with asthma who showed up to the emergency room 375 times in a year, so more than twice a day in a year. And she had asthma, and it was poorly controlled asthma, and whatever medication they threw at her, you know, she would go to the hospital, she would get better, she would go home, and a day later she'd be back. Or she'd go home and then later that afternoon she'd be back. And no one could figure this out for an entire year. Guess what? She was allergic to Angora wool. Guess what she had lying as a blanket on her bed? Angora wool blankets. Now, do you really think the ER physician would have thought to ask, well, do you have any Angora wool in your home? Or even the allergist to ask that question. So the ability to investigate and see into someone's home can be tremendously valuable. And I don't think we talk about that enough 
when it comes to technology and what the incremental value add for technology could be. So that really, that's my healthcare story as a provider that really propelled me into technology-enabled healthcare delivery and the importance of that for caring for our patients the right way. That's super fascinating. This is actually the first time I've heard someone talk of it that way, which is I've heard a lot of dermatologists talk about it where you can send me a picture and I can help you, but I haven't heard about it, especially from an allergist point of view, that makes complete sense that you need to know what they're allergic to. And if they can't describe it to you clearly enough, unless you see it with your own eyes, whether it's a picture or video or something, it's going to be really hard for you to get to that correct diagnosis very quickly. And they don't, they don't know what to ask. Um, You know, the other thing is, I mean, talk about, you know, going back to my detective work and all this and leading the witness, right? It's all based off of the questions that we ask of patients. So I was, I was recently at a conference put on by the Digital uh, Medicine Society and there was someone talking about the importance of asynchronous care. And one of the light bulbs that went off in their heads, this is a fully asynchronous platform, was the ability for patients to really craft and tell their story. So they will write up an essay of everything that's going on in their life and be able to share that. So the provider very efficiently can read that and then it can guide further questions and kind of guide the entire journey for the patient. But when you're sitting in an office, first of all, we already know that there's white coat hypertension. So obviously there's also going to be white coat anxiety when somebody's asking you a bunch of questions, one. And then two, you can get completely derailed and miss the real issue that's going on with the patient. So again, another incremental value add for the use of technology and care delivery by allowing someone to write up and share what they believe to be their biggest pain points, what their story is, and then allow that doctor to offline review that information so they feel like they have a better understanding of who the patient is in front of them. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. Um, As you've seen... From your days of Doctor on Demand through to today, uh, and we talked about the kind of evolution of virtual healthcare um, from the very basic phone and video to now with peripherals to now with asynchronous to now with more interactive types of things, digital therapeutics, etc. How has virtual care evolved in a good way or a bad way? And that how do, where else do you think it needs to go to be as effective as you said? Which there's still gaps. So I'd love to understand from your point of view what these gaps, you know, what we've come a long way. So, you know, where, how far have we come? What is there still left to do for virtual care to really make that full meaningful impact? Well, I'm so happy to see that there's really wide scale appreciation and adoption of at least synchronous video visits by providers. And that was really just, they realized it once they had to do it and they were forced to do it during COVID. And I've said this before, but if there was any silver lining with the pandemic, it was that. It was that it forced providers to use telehealth and then a light bulb went off and said, oh, I can do this for certain use cases or for my patient population. This isn't like voodoo medicine or inappropriate medicine. This is like absolutely appropriate. I'm also happy to see all of the adoption in the mental health space. And as it relates to synchronous and asynchronous care, and then really helping to solve the access issue. In addition for mental health, again, going back to somebody's home environment, um, as well as like what their underlying clinical condition is, we have to remember like if somebody's depressed, we're asking that depressed person to get dressed, get it all together, and then again, show up in the doctor's office on their terms. Whereas now we can say, look, all you have to do is click up, click on this button and just show up. So that's like not, we don't talk about that enough, have the importance of telehealth for people who have underlying illnesses like depression and anxiety, where there is a barrier to having the motivation. It's, that's the intrinsic to their disease, having the motivation to actually go in and see their doctor 
or having debilitating fear and anxiety and not wanting to do that, or maybe having um, a fear of open public spaces. So not just about like, yes, we're addressing the shortage of physicians, but also we are better able to treat a person's underlying illness. And then the other example is someone may come into my office and say, oh, I'm so anxious and this, this, and this is going on. If I were doing a video visit and I can see into their home and realize they're a hoarder, that's another thing that could would weigh into the way in which I manage that patient that I wouldn't be able to tell and all these other environmental factors that come into play. So I'm really glad that there are so many advances in the mental health space. I think that there is opportunity to uh, bring all of our other operations and processes up to speed to better support telehealth. So one of the things I took for granted when I joined Ascension was, oh, surely there's online scheduling, you know, and you can just click a button and see the doctor and, and surely there's an ability to search for providers and enter in, a, you know, your zip code and then have all that information surface and then you're connected. Um, that wasn't the case. And that's, you know, not any issue, you know, problem that's unique to Ascension when you are an integrated delivery system and you've, you've now, you've acquired, you know, 150 hospitals and 5,000 outpatient facilities, how the heck are you going to be able to have a good search function and have online scheduling that's nationalized? I mean, it's a huge lift. And you see with private equity backed businesses too, and these roll-ups where they acquire a whole bunch of practices and then they work to create a single name for all of those practices. So it is really hard to do. Um, and if you don't have those things in place, it makes telehealth or asynchronous care really, really hard. And it makes virtual first care almost impossible because you don't have that patient record. You don't have that information. The patient doesn't have the ability to enter in that all, all that information and send it to the provider ahead of time. So those foundational things need to be in place and they need to get in place really quickly in order for us to catch up with all of the other amazing technology advances. So we've got to get the ability to search for a provider. We've got to get the ability to have online scheduling across the board. Otherwise, it becomes that much more of a barrier, that much more challenging for patients to do a virtual first visit. Yep. And that's focused on the outpatient setting, right? And then we have a whole host of issues on the inpatient setting, say inpatient side as well. Yep. How would you kind of Two, two separate questions, but related, looking at it this way in terms of what needs to be done, what you talked about is a pretty big lift, even for a large system, like someone like an Ascension, or even for a large payer like Aetna. How, what kind of advice would you give for a smaller system, let's say an independent hospital that wants to serve its community or smaller, you know, IDN with maybe just a couple of hospitals under its belt, um, to be able to put together an effective telehealth or virtual care program so that it is both on the inpatient and outpatient side, helping its patients as best it can? Well, for sure, you know, foundationally making sure that they have things like online scheduling and the ability to find their providers and that they have an online presence. So like those are things they should do telehealth or not in order to improve like access overall, like period, end of sentence. So those are just like table stakes right now. Amazon is getting into healthcare. Like you have to, you have to do it. You have to have an online presence. You have to have brand awareness. You have to have the ability to search for a doctor. You have to have online scheduling. And more over and over again, I see that um, healthcare systems, big or small, individual pra provider practices don't have those things in place. So that is that is critical. So don't start a telehealth program if you don't have those things in place. Focus on those things first. 
The second piece is focus on those things, but make sure that your providers and your care teams are engaged in that process because otherwise you're going to end up with a disconnect. I've seen again, over and over again, even in my own healthcare journey as a patient, all of it gets outsourced to a centralized scheduler, to an outsourced tool, and none of that communicates with the practice. None of it communicates with the practice software, the hospital software. So what you end up is with a disjointed experience where the patient is like, oh, wow, that was easy. And then an hour later, they get a phone call from the local people who are like, I'm sorry, this appointment was entered in the wrong way, or we can't see you and we don't have your insurance information on file. We have to double check with the doctor. The doctor's not in that day. Like, we have to figure this out, guys. You know, every other industry has figured this out. That would be like you book something with an airline and then JetBlue calls you up and is like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. We actually already sold that seat. What? Like, it would be unacceptable. And so why is it acceptable with our overall health? <clears throat> so don't bother building telehealth until you have those foundational things in place. Um, and make sure that you engage with your operators, your uh, admin people, your nurses, and your providers to just make sure that the systems that you are implementing are aligned with whatever internal systems are in place. Once they are, the next thing to do is really make sure that your providers are on board with telehealth and your nurses and your staff are on board. So I'll tell you right now, if your staff doesn't understand telehealth or they have some trepidation or they don't have belief in the value of telehealth, they're going to book your patients for an in-person follow-up appointment, even if you say, yeah, you know what, telehealth is fine. So you want to make sure that everybody's educated, understand the use cases of telehealth, understands the importance of telehealth in, your, in the practice. And um, one of the things we did at Ascension, which was really helpful, was like we created a culture of yes to telehealth. Someone wants a follow-up appointment for telehealth? Yes. Great. You're booked. Someone wants a new patient appointment for telehealth? Yes. Great. You're booked. And the providers were also like, you know what? There is absolutely information and things that I can provide that deliver value for my patients, even if it's through telehealth. And so sometimes that means watchful waiting and saying, hey, you know what? This might be an ear infection. If you were in my office, I'd look in your ear. But Either way, I might recommend watchful waiting. So what we're going to do is watchful waiting right now. Or, you know, and, and getting providers to feel comfortable with that. And that really takes lots of conversation. That takes like, let's look at your patient profile right now. And let's go through every single one of your patients we have. And let's go through multiple case scenarios and which ones are the ones that absolutely need to be seen in person. Okay, your vaccines, fine. Everything else, yes to telehealth. Um. And then obviously making sure that all your systems and everything are communicated and communicating with one another and are integrated well. And last thing I'll say about this is when I talk about telehealth, I mean synchronous care, asynchronous care, and remote patient monitoring all in one. I think synchronous telehealth um, and asynchronous, like is, synchronous telehealth is a foundational component before you introduce asynchronous and before you introduce remote patient monitoring. Because asynchronous, so your portal messages or what have you, um, or your remote patient monitoring could lead to an escalation. That escalation should not be an escalation where you're, you're calling the cold calling the patient saying, oh, go to the emergency room or come into the office to see me right away. That escalation should be a telehealth visit, video visit with either a nurse who can assess and triage the patient or the physician. You don't have to say, oh, I've got this crazy message, send the patient to the emergency room, or oh, I got this crazy blood pressure value, send the patient to the emergency room. So make sure there's comfort with synchronous telehealth before you start to layer in asynchronous and remote patient monitoring programs. 
No, this is a fantastic step-by-step for all the systems out there that I know are looking to start their programs and kind of are at a loss as to where do I start? There's so many pieces to it, right? It's like, what do you prioritize? What do you do first? Follow-up question there on that front. Um, We have such a huge labor shortage today, not just with nurses, but with providers, with specialists. Um, How far do you think telehealth can go to help solve that problem? Are there limits to, I mean, obviously procedures, things like that will always be a limit, a natural limit to it. But from where we are today, is there still more we could do that we should be doing and what's holding us back? A thousand percent more. It's called an e-consult and it's called a specialist second opinion and it's called collaborative care. And like we need to utilize our specialists in a much more effective and efficient way. So if I'm a primary care provider and I have a clinical question for, you know, on behalf of my patient, which is essentially like a referral, I shouldn't just send the patient to the specialist. I should ask the specialist a question and then say, so what do you think? Should I manage this on my own or do you think this needs to come in to see you? And the specialist should be able to, based off of a provider to provider interaction, give relevant, important, useful information for that patient. So we can absolutely do more by leveraging technology to improve and increase provider to provider interactions. One, two, with regard to synchronous telehealth, if you think about it today, if you have a GI specialist, an allergist, and a primary care doctor, you would need three different appointments to tell those providers the same exact story. And then you as the patient would have to remember everything you said, remember everything the PCP said, remember everything that the allergy said to then go relay that to the next provider. I mean, I can't think of something more inefficient. So we need to be able to leverage um, video conferencing to have multiple providers on at the same time. Take 15 minutes, let the providers have a conversation with one another, with the patient there, and then make an informed treatment decision. Why are we doing this? We absolutely need to do this, and we have the video conferencing technology to do it. So we need some sort of reimbursement structure around this, and we need better technology to effectively connect those providers and then have the patient kind of show up on multiple patient charts at the same time and be able to book that easily. Right, like the scheduling system to support a, a, like exactly. a some collaborative care. No, that makes complete sense. Um, one of the, your newest positions has been as uh, the board director for ATA. So, um, which you started this fall. So we're super excited to, to see the impacts you're going to be making there. What's, what's top of mind for you uh, and what's top of mind for ATA going, looking into 2023? I think for the ATA, which, you know, used to stand for American Telemedicine Association, and we're really moving away from that and calling it ATA and AT really standing more for telehealth. So the first thing is really educating people, one, that telehealth is health. Two, that telehealth is an all-encompassing term that includes synchronous interactions like we're doing right now, asynchronous interactions, portal messaging, um, patients filling out information and, or sending a video or a photo to a patient a provider who's reviewing that at a later time, and remote patient monitoring. So the, the ATA really is looking to be the trusted source, the source of truth for all of this information that's out there place where providers can come and learn more about the latest trends in the space, Um, a place where organizations can come to have effective advocacy support and work to educate our legal and regulatory bodies around the value of this type of care, and a place where people can all come together and collaborate around effective care delivery. So we have our meeting coming up in San Antonio in the beginning of March. I encourage you all to come. Um, But it really is an exciting time for the ATA. 
um, and for a number of other organizations that are really working to bring together the brightest minds to really think through how to make healthcare delivery more effective, more equitable, and more seamless for patients and providers. No, it's fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing what the impacts are and seeing you in March. So I know we're coming up on the end of our time here. Um, as as we leave, we'd love to hear what's next for you. What are you excited about working on this year beyond uh, the projects for ATA? That's a secret. I can't tell you. Um, but, you know, I'm really just, I'm just, um, you know, again, doing some soul searching and really thinking about where um, my skill set can make the biggest impact. Um and really keeping my eye out for organizations, newer organizations that are really, and, and people that have had experience in uh, traditional healthcare coming to the table with that experience, but then not being bound by some of those constraints, whether it's a mental clinical model or a mental organizational model. Um, so I'm just looking to interact with and kick around ideas with really smart and talented people like yourself about how we can really innovate and change. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it and I can't wait to, uh, to see what's up, uh, up the pike here for 2023. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.